growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Biblical characters who faced a situation or something in their life where they faced that situation, in essence, alone. How did they handle it? What did they do right? What did they get wrong? What did they learn from it? What can we learn from it? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you were the only one that felt the way you did or the only one that believed what you did? How did that make you feel? Were you tempted to just keep quiet or to stand up and be heard? Your feelings will tell you it's not worth it. Your feelings will tell you, well, 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 maybe I'm being unfair. Your feelings will tell you you have to eventually come to the place where you're going to choose faith over feeling. Hello and welcome to this week's Crosswalk. We're so glad you've joined us today because we're excited about moving into a brand new series entitled Alone. Pastor Clay is going to show us 10 different characters from the Bible and situations where they face something alone. Probably all of us at times have known what it feels like to be alone. It's usually not very comfortable. You may feel it. You may feel it in your home, in your family, at school. I'm never alone. Remember, I'm never alone when I walk with God. Today, we're looking at a man named Noah, a man who stood alone against the culture of his day and who God used in a mighty way. Now here's Pastor Clay. It is a new series uh, today. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, where I got the idea for uh, this series. If you're part of Cross Culture on a regular basis, you probably know that I tend to just to like to work through books of the Bible. I I just believe in expositional preaching and uh, just working through. That's what I like to do. It's what I believe uh, has the greatest impact on our lives. And so I love uh, doing that. But I will sometimes do a thematic series. I still hopefully exegete a text and, you know, bring you the truth of the text. But uh, sometimes do a thematic series. And so... This idea came to me as a result of really one of my favorite television shows uh, that uh, is entitled Alone. Have you all ever heard of the show? You may have heard of the show Alone? Clearly, it's popular. Actually, it it is uh, pretty popular. It comes on the History Channel. This is the off-season right now, so it'll be starting a new season before long. But it's entitled Alone. Here's the uh, crux of the show. You ready? Uh, Ten people... Not just 10 anybody. These are supposed to be survival experts because it actually is a very dangerous thing what they do. 10 people are selected to take part in the series each, each season. And they take these 10 people and they uh, take them to some incredibly remote place where they are dropped off alone. I mean, each individual person is put in some very remote place by themselves. They're given a few items to take with them, a tarp, uh, you know, maybe something to start a fire with, perhaps uh, a knife or um, just a few items, very few items that they're given. They are dropped off. Uh, they're also given a uh, camera, a couple of cameras to record themselves. There's no camera crew. They're given a sat phone uh, to call in case of an emergency because there, there are some dangerous situations on the show. Or if they're just ready to give up, they're just ready to tap out, if you will. They, they use the sat phone for that. But other than that, they are just dropped off in the middle of nowhere and they have to survive. They have to figure out how to get water, how to get food, how to not get eaten by a bear, how to just, I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy stuff. And they are totally and completely alone. And that's it. They are there until, and, and then when they want to give up or they're thinking it's time to give, they don't, they have no contact with the other 10 contestants. They have no contact really with the show. They're just there until somebody comes and, and gets them uh, because as people get tired or they get worn out or 
they get eaten by a bear. I shouldn't make light of that because that, it probably could happen. But as soon as I say that, that'll probably happen this season. But it, it's some dangerous thing. But they can, they can tap out. They can quit. They can give up. And then they'll come and get them in a boat or airplane or whatever they need. The last person still out there alone wins half a million dollars. So that's, that's kind of the, the thing of the show. Now, it's interesting. I, I do like the survival aspect of it, you know, and seeing how they figure out you know, how to get fish or, or food or how to, how to keep from being attacked by a bear or whatever the case may be. I, I, that survival stuff is kind of cool. I do enjoy that, although I'm not a big survivalist guy like myself. Uh, but, but I do like seeing that stuff. I like seeing how they figure things out and make shelters and use, you know, the elements around them. All that's very interesting. But to me, the most fascinating part of this show is seeing the psychological and emotional effects that being alone has on them. It's fascinating to me to begin to see how these people begin to, to change. By the way, I get, I get no kickback from promoting this show. I'm, not, I'm just telling you, it's what, it's what attracts me to the show. And it's fascinating to see how these people, the longer it goes on, 10 days, 30 days, uh, 3 months, how they begin to be affected by being so totally isolated from the whole rest of the world. And that got me to thinking about our own lives and the fact that at times in our lives, I, I would, I think it would be safe to say that there may not, there's probably not a person in this room that at some point in their life has not felt alone. It, it, it might be a particular crisis. It might be a health concern. It might be an emotional, it might be a relational thing that's, but you just have these feelings of, of loneliness. Would I, would I be wrong in, in saying that maybe perhaps everybody's felt that way at times? So then I got to thinking, well, perhaps we could look at some biblical characters who faced a situation or something in their life where they, they faced that situation, in essence, alone. How did they handle it? What did they do right? What did they get wrong? What, what did they learn from it? What can we learn from it? That was kind of the, the uh, impetus, if you will, uh, behind the, the idea for this series, Alone. I pray that it ministers to you and helps you and, and as it helps me as we walk through some of these and look at some of these biblical uh, examples. We begin today with looking at a man by the name of Noah who stood alone against his culture. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Genesis chapter 6. Uh, whether it's on your phone or on your iPad or old school hard copy. How many have hard copy? Old school. Yeah, well, quite a few. Wow. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, we're reading this morning verses 1 through 13, okay? Y'all glad to be here? Thanks, thanks. I appreciate it so much, I really do. Now listen, maybe you've heard this story, maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you've certainly heard the story of Noah and the flood and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's been a while since you read it. Genesis chapter 6, here we go. Listen to what the Word of God says. Now it came about when man, when men... Uh, began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. A, a reference to to how long it would be, honestly, a reference to how long it would be before the, uh, before the flood comes. That's how long Noah would be building this ark. Uh, more to do with that than, 
than the limit of a person's age. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now here we go. Here's uh, kind of three ideas that I want to share with you today based on this, this Genesis 6 text and this idea of being alone against the culture. Here's one we're going to start with today. The culture breaks from God. Verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to immediately reread those uh, because we just read it. But the truth is, the reality is, the culture, the society, the world around us breaks. It breaks away from God. Now, let me say that, uh, first, that these first few verses, 4 or 5, these first verses here, are verses that have been discussed a lot through the years. Okay? Been a lot of discussion about these Verses, some of the ideas shared in here, uh, these sons of God and who they are and the Nephilim and who they are. And there have been different ideas tossed around. I, not that it's not important, but I don't want to get bogged down in that too deeply today because it's not the emphasis of, of what we're trying to bring out of the text. But I do want to say this because some of you perhaps have heard this before. Uh, perhaps you've heard this interpretation of Genesis uh, chapter 6, but it has been proposed uh, by some, that the sons of God, mentioned, uh, I think, in verse 2, are actually angels. They are fallen angels who uh, obviously rebelled against God, uh, but they, uh, they the old uh, uh, polite country term would be, they took a shining to the daughters of, of men. They, they, they liked them. They, liked the, they were sensually, uh, physically drawn to them. They had desire for those women. And so these angels uh, came down, uh, married these women, which is kind of strange, but married these women and then uh, had uh, physical relationships with them and produced giants as offspring. Uh, and that is the Nephilim then mentioned in verse 4 are the giants who were the offspring of this uh, unholy connection between uh, fallen angels and women. Have you ever heard that uh, interpretation of that text before? Yeah, a few of you have. And, and, and it has been popular among some people. So I did want to go ahead and mention it before I totally debunk it. Uh, it's not, <laughs> I'm not going to totally debunk it because I don't have time to mess with it. I, I really don't. But let me just say this, okay? That, uh, and it's okay if, if that's your understanding and that's what you, it's, it's okay. But I'm just going to tell you that that interpretation of the text creates way more questions than it answers 
and creates way more problems uh, than it solves. It, it really does. And then we could go on and about various different things. Honestly, uh, a more straightforward, uh, really a more logical uh, interpretation of the text is simply this. The sons of God mentioned in verse 2 are uh, descendants. They are men of the lineage or the line of Adam and Eve's son, Seth. Seth was a godly man and he was uh, desiring and God desired him to, to raise up a godly line. Remember all this, this way back at the beginning, God said, I'm going to send my Messiah. He's going to come. And so th- th- these were the sons of, uh, of Seth, They're referred to as the sons of God. The daughters of men are simply uh, ladies, women who come from the line or the lineage of Adam and Eve's son, Cain. It was not a godly line. It was, it was not their desire to live godly. It was not their desire to, to follow God. It was, it, I mean, you, you know the story of Cain, perhaps, and so how all of that went. And so what happened was the, 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 the men of the line of Seth, right, who are supposed to be godly, who are supposed to be looking for God's direction and desire for their life, that they instead began to select for themselves wives based purely on the physical, based purely on the, the sensual, based purely on the physical attraction and the physical desire that they had for these women. Instead of seeking who God would have for their life or a spiritual uh, aspect of these women, they instead were selecting wives for themselves. You notice the text said, whomever they wished, is what the text said, based purely on physical attraction. Now, let me say this. Physical attraction is not a bad thing, right? There should be, if you are married or if you plan to marry someday, there should be a physical attraction between you and your spouse. I think my wife is beautiful. I think she's like hot. and And I should feel that way. And if you're married, you should feel that way about your spouse. Or if you plan to get married tonight, you should feel that way about your spouse. We should see them as attractive. By the way, sidebar, by the way, if you are married, if you're in a relationship and you, and, and you somehow at some point begin to, to sense or feel that, I, man, I really don't feel uh, physically attracted to my spouse. The solution is not to leave your spouse to go find somebody that you are attracted to, okay? The solution is to get on your knees before God and talk to him about where you got off the rails somewhere and take the steps necessary to recognize the beauty of your male or female, the beauty of your spouse and who they are and why you fell in love with them, what it was, what it is that attracts them to you. Okay, so physical attraction in itself is not not bad. Maybe maybe you could think of it this way. Physical attraction itself is not a bad thing. Physical attraction by itself is a bad thing. Okay, it's not enough. So what began to happen on the earth, what began to happen with, with men is that their focus began to turn away from the spiritual, away from the godly, and it began to turn purely to the sensual, purely completely to the physical. It became all about the material. It became all about the here and now. It became all about the sensual. That's what it all became about. And the world became corrupt. By the way, that's always been what it's been about as far as the sin curse is concerned. It's always been the bent of mankind to turn away from God and to go towards the physical, the material, the here and now, the, the, 
what I can experience or what I can desire instead of giving a thought to the, the, the spiritual component or desire that God would have for our lives. Do you understand? Does that, does that make sense? See what I'm saying? Think about the irony of this for a moment. Think about all God has ever wanted, all God has ever wanted is to love us, to have a relationship with us. To minister to us, to provide for us, to bless us in our lives. All God really has ever wanted, as the prophet Malachi uh, puts it in, in uh, Malachi chapter 3 or 4, uh, I, I, will pour, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. I know the context of that verse is, is dealing with, with tithing and and. You know, material wealth and giving to God. I understand that. But, but the application would apply to every area of our lives. Why? That God would desire to bless us. To give us joy and hope and peace and contentment. That's all God has ever wanted to do. Remember this, with no ulterior motive. Right? God's got nothing to gain from this. He's not less God if he, if he doesn't create us. He's no less God if we don't worship him. I've said this many times. He's no less God if we don't recognize him for who he is. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our obedience. He doesn't need us at all in that sense to be God. With no ulterior motive, he simply chose to create us and and to, to give us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 11. He said this. He says, come to me, all of you who are tired and have heavy loads. And I will give you rest. It's that desire that God has for our lives. And man, mankind, in Genesis 6 and still even today in, in the world around us, mankind slapped God's hand away and said, I don't need you. I don't want you. I can live my life the way I want to. I can do what I want to. And I don't need a God telling me how to live my life. That, in essence, is what this rebellion was all about. Man breaks from God. Uh, several years ago, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I played around a golf while I was out there, and it's the first time I'd ever played golf in a desert kind of environment. It's really cool. I really enjoyed it. But one of the things about playing golf or just being out there, if you've ever been out anywhere out west like that, it's really hot, hot, right? I mean, really hot, in the, obviously in the summertime I'm referring to. And it's very uh, dry. There's no, no humidity, right? It's a dry heat. <laughs> it's a dry heat. Yeah, but it's a dry heat. And it's really true. There's no humidity, and so you don't sweat. Or, or well, actually, you don't, you don't realize that you're sweating. And so you have to continually be taking in fluids. You have to be drinking all the time because here, you know, you, might, you break out in a sweat, and you know, but that doesn't necessarily happen there, so you've got to keep taking in liquid. So one day, I was playing golf, and I was approaching uh, this hole that I was playing. I was approaching the green after hitting a fabulous second shot into the green. I don't know. I just said that. I have no idea. But I'm approaching, I'm approaching the green, and off to the right, I know something looks a little strange, and I walk over there, and uh, here's a, a bird, a roadrunner, that has gotten its head stuck underneath a sprinkler head there at the golf course, uh, on the golf course. If, you, if you've ever played golf, you know they, they have like these big discs, they'll have some of these discs, like sprinkler heads that pop up when water comes out, and then when the water stops, they drop back down. Well, obviously, this roadrunner had run over there uh, to, get a, <laughs> to get a drink of water while the head was up. But before he finished, the head came back down and there's this roadrunner stuck in, in the ground there. It's not something you see every day. But I, I walk over there 
gently, caringly, uh, and, I, and I desire to, to, to pick this bird up. And, and what do I want to do? I want to set it free, right? I, I want to I I I deliver it from harm, right? Do you know what the bird's reaction was? Scared to death of me, right? Frightened. Because the bird was afraid that I wanted to harm it. The bird was afraid that I wanted to bring injury to it. The bird was afraid that I wanted to capture it when actually what I wanted to do was set it free. Now, we can excuse the bird. Number one, probably because of its intelligence level. But number two, because the bird doesn't know me. The bird doesn't know my intent when I walk up there, right? But does mankind not do the same thing to God? It's not God's intent always to set us free from sin and, and shame and the consequences that go with that sin? Is it not always God's desire to deliver us from harm? But the world treats God as if he is the enemy. The world treats God, uh, the culture around us treats God as if he wants to bring them harm, as if he wants to imprison them when actually he simply wants to set us free. We can excuse the bird for its actions, but mankind should know better. We should know better from his word and we should know better even from experience about who our God is. Look at the way the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 1. He says this, maybe you've read these words before. God's anger is shown from heaven against all the evil and wrong things people do. By their own evil lives, they hide the truth. God shows his anger because some knowledge of him has been made clear to them, to the world around us. Yes, God has shown himself to them. There are things about him that people cannot see, his eternal power and, his, uh, and, and all the things that make him God. But since the beginning of the world, those things have been easy to understand by what God has made. Paul's saying the, the creation itself puts God on display. The intricacy, the complexity, the, the systematic approach that you see in everything around us in the world. So people have no, what's that next word? So people have no excuse for the bad things they do. They knew God, but they did not give glory to God or thank him. Their thinking became useless. Their foolish minds were filled with darkness. They said they were wise, but they became fools. They traded the glory of God who lives forever for the worship of idols made to look like earthly people, birds, animals, snakes. It is the bent away from God. Now, let me say this. There have been, historically, instances in time where, where men, where cultures, where societies have turned back to God. They are rare, and in our, I would dare say, judging by, the, uh, by all of us here, in our lifetime, we have only ever seen our culture, our society, our nation, or what we've only ever seen it move away from God. Away from God and, and, and His uh, moral standards and His desires for our life. As it, but it, but there are historical instances where it turns around. Can I tell you, we should pray that way. One of the greatest examples uh, that I love reading about is, uh, took place in the early part of the 20th century, so now a long time ago, over 100 years ago. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, it was known as the Great Welsh Revival. It took place in Great Britain and Wales, where it is estimated that when this revival, when this, this, this movement towards God, when it began to happen, they didn't keep official counts, but it's estimated that a very conservative number would be 250,000 people came into a relationship with Jesus Christ within the first six months of this revival starting. It had such a radical impact on the culture, not just an individual person's life, but the culture, the society as a whole, had such a radical impact on it that records or accounts show that policemen 
literally were out of a job. They, they, they had nothing to do every day other than they would oversee as people were going to daily prayer uh, rallies and things like that at, at churches. There, there, there was no crime. Magistrates, judges would come to court to discover that there were no cases to try in their district because no one had, had broken the law. Families were restored. Fathers who had, had quite honestly just been deadbeats and not providing for their family or who had piddled their, their money away on something else were, were at home with their families and with their, with their children. They were investing in, the, in their marriages and in, in their lives and they were making good and they were restoring relationships. Uh, mining is a very big thing in, in that, that part of the, the world. And, and it's reported that the, the miners, so radical was their change as they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ that the that the, the ponies that worked in the mines, they hauled the, the carts around that had whatever they were mining out of it, that the ponies had, had struggled, they, they had trouble understanding what their masters were saying to them because their language had so radically changed. They were no longer violent, they were no longer hitting them, they were no longer cursing, and the, the ponies didn't even understand what they were saying as they were speaking kind and soft and, and, and gentle uh, words to these ponies. And yet, the interesting thing was that they said that the output of the mines actually went up during this time because the men, the workers down there, had, had a, they had a new reason to, to give their all and to work. It was to the glory of God. God God does that, and he does still do that, and we should pray for that. We really should pray for that, that God would, would bring all of us to repentance. Uh, it, the church, the church recognized that we've not done all that we could or should have done for the world around us to show them the love of Christ, to, to speak the truth of Christ to them, and to change culture. We should pray for that to happen, but we have to understand, as a general rule, historically, uh, down through time, it has always been man's bent, bent away from to break away from God. Why? Jesus said it in John chapter 3. He said this. He said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. It is the world. Here's the second idea uh, this morning that we're looking at. God's heart breaks for the culture. Culture breaks from God. God's heart breaks for the culture. Let me read verse 6 and 7 and then 12 and 13. In verse 6, it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 12, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them. On the earth. Go ahead, say it. Whoa. Whoa. Let's address, I, I think I said something in prayer a, a little while ago. Let's, let's address the, at least the two elephants that just showed up in the room based on that passage of Scripture. Okay? Elephant number one. God does not make mistakes. Okay? God does not make mistakes. God, God did not... This text is not saying that God is like, oh my, oh myself, what have I done? What have I, what have I done? How did, how did, how did I, how did I end up with this mess? Why did I even do this in the first place? Listen to me. God knows everything. The theological term is he is omniscient. He has all knowledge. He not only has all knowledge of what will occur, he has all knowledge of what could occur. Any, any, 
a possibility of, of situation that, that could occur. God has all knowledge. God knows. God knows that the world is going to reach this condition here in Genesis 6. God knows it before he ever creates us, okay? But that doesn't mean that it hurt any less when it came to this point. That's what I want you to understand. It broke God's heart to see the condition that his creation had become. Think of it this way, and this is kind of a, this is probably not the most accurate analogy because, because we don't know things the way God does, but, but maybe this will help you get your mind around this idea. Those of you who have children, have raised children, or been responsible for children, or, or you know, grandchildren, that sort of thing, or will someday, or in the process of raising your children, whatever the case may be, you know, don't you? You know they're going to make mistakes you know they're going to mess up. And no matter how many times you tell them and how many different ways you try to say it or explain it or show it, you know that there's a time coming in their lives where they're going to make decisions that are not in their best interest. You know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. But can I tell you this? On the authority of a parent, it will not hurt any less when that moment comes. The fact that you know it And that you know what's coming in the sense that you know they're going to mess up. It won't hurt any less when that moment comes upon you. Do you understand what I'm saying? I realize that we walk a kind of a razor thin edge when we try and have a proper theological understanding of who God is. But at the risk of of making God sound too anthropomorphic would be the the big term. Making God sound too uh, human. It broke God's heart. Now, I know people don't sometimes like to think that way. People don't want to think about God in the sense of, of having emotions like men do or somehow uh, being connected to man at that level or, or somehow, uh, it, somehow it interrupts with God's sovereignty or, or it, it causes a problem with, with God's authority if, if somehow if God uh, ties, is somehow tied to man on such a level like that, on such an emotional uh, base level like that. But can, can I just remind you of this, that God is the one who willingly chose to tie himself to us us not tie himself to us in the sense that he is dependent on us as i said a moment he is god and he is god whether we worship him or serve him or believe in him or anything else no but tied to us in the sense that god is the one who chose to love you and me and allowed us the opportunity to love him do you understand and anytime you enter into a love relationship and a lot of you can amen this anytime you enter into a love relationship you open yourself up to the opportunity of hurt and misunderstanding Talking about God having feelings like his heart being broken over something, it doesn't make him less God, ladies and gentlemen. It makes him more God. Because it shows that, that God can be supreme, God can, be, uh, can, can have all authority and be sovereign, and yet he can still allow mankind to make decisions that are contrary to what he would desire for their life, and even re- in rejection of God himself. And it still doesn't violate God's sovereignty. He's still ahead of everything that goes on. He still knows exactly how it's all going to come down. He's still working in every situation. But that doesn't alleviate the fact that it breaks his heart. It quite simply broke his heart. I think, Tyler, I have some passages of Scripture uh, that deal with this uh, verse. Uh, or am I, am, I going on to, am I going on to my second one? That's okay. Let me go on to my second one. Uh, the second elephant in the room. God does not make mistakes, okay? He doesn't. He knew, he knew what's going on. He knew it, but it grieved his heart to do, to do that. Here's the second 
elephant in the room based on the text that we just read. God's judgment was an act of mercy. Now that may sound strange to you, but God's judgment was actually an act of mercy. One of the arguments that comes against those, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of him, you believe you know, in God and a relationship and all that kind of stuff, one of the arguments that those outside of that relationship or, or, or those in our, in our culture or society, uh, one of the arguments that they oftentimes will make is that when they look at a passage of scripture like this, they will say, look at this, how can you believe, how can you believe in a God like this? This is an angry God, this is a, a mean God, this is a God who would, who would destroy everything and wipe everybody out just because they wouldn't follow him. How can you believe in a God? Like that. That's the argument that you will sometimes hear. Now listen, when, when somebody makes a statement like that, it not only is a display of incredible arrogance to think that they can stand in judgment of God Almighty, but it is also a display of unbelievable ignorance because they simply do not know the God whom they are passing judgment on. They do not know nor do they understand that God's act of judgment was actually an act of mercy. And here's why. Here's why. A completely corrupted culture would corrupt completely. Listen, verse 12 makes it clear there was nothing, that everything was corrupt. The whole world was corrupted because of man's choices, because of man's sin, because of the sin uh, curse that had fallen on the, on the earth. Everything was corrupt. Everybody had turned and was doing their, their own thing, going their own way. It, it was in a, in a very real way, the, like it was in, in the time of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own sight. It was the world in which, uh, in which Noah existed. It was the world that had come to be so polluted and so corrupt. And listen to me. And you know this is true. That corruption would only continue to become more corrupt. There's, no, there's nothing, God says there's nothing, it's nothing but violence, murder, rape, whatever all you can think associate with violent acts. That's all it was all the time. And that is the world, ladies and gentlemen, that is the world that all of us, that you and me and your children would have been born into. Do you understand what I'm saying? That is the world that man was creating. And that is the world. Can you imagine bringing your children up? In a world like that where it's nothing but violence, no hope, no joy. Not only is it continual violence, but there's no hope for, for redemption because there's no gospel message because everyone is corrupt. There's not even a line through which God can send the Messiah because everything is corrupt. Everything is sinful. So there's no hope for our lives. I had never thought about it like this before. But this, and this may sound weird to you, but other than the cross... The flood judgment of God may be the greatest demonstration of his mercy in all of Scripture. Because it meant that we had a chance. And every generation since Noah had a chance. It broke God's heart to see what his creation had become. But it was actually a demonstration of his mercy to take the action that he took. By the way, I could even say mercy on those who were who were living in that generation because they would have only simply continued to pile up sins upon themselves that they were accountable for. But certainly for future generations, it was an act of mercy. Okay, uh, let's go on real quick. Let's go to the third idea uh, this morning. I better say this so we can close this out. Let's go to the third idea. God's people have to break with the culture. Culture breaks from God. God's heart breaks for the culture. God's people... 
have to break with the culture. In verse 8 and 9, it says this. Look at what it says. This is, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generation of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah, Noah did what? Say it. Noah what? Noah walked with God. This is it. This is, this is Noah's moment of, of loneliness. It's Noah in the world, a world that is corrupt, that is vile, that is violent, that is anti-God, that is all this. And in the midst of that stood Noah, which, by the way, many conservative scholars believe Noah was the last of his generation. They obviously went on, as the text says, but Noah was one of the Nephilim. They, he was one of the spiritual giants of his generation. It was the, it was the men of renown, I think is the way it puts it in the text. They were, they were men who, who wanted to get it right, who wanted to stand up for God. Noah was the only one left of his generation. He was the only one willing to stand up and say, no, this is our God and he loves us and he wants a relationship with us, but we have to turn from the way we're doing life. We have to trust him and follow him. What we have to do, we have to, we have to break with it. God is still looking, I tell you this, God is still looking for men and women of renown. He's still looking for people, as the Apostle Paul writes in, in the book of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everyone. We live in a world that is becoming increasingly intolerant of God and a relationship with God. Can I be honest with you? I'm, I'm not a, you guys know I don't talk a lot about politics and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I think that, that if people vote based on what God's word says and what candidates uh, have, should be and what their, what, what their position should be and how they should feel about things like life and that sort of thing, if, if people will do that, I think God will take care of it. But but who would have thought, can I just say this for you? Who would have thought that we'd be living in an age, even, even 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe two years ago, who would have thought that we'd actually be having a, a battle today in our nation? It's not just this, it's this state, started in the state, but to, that we'd actually be having a battle over whether men should be allowed to go into women's restrooms and locker rooms. We're actually debating that. And, and somehow... Those that, that believe that, that it ought to be the way it's been forever and, and that who passed a law. It's unbelievable that we had to actually pass a law to, to, to keep in place what's always been in place. That men go in men's restrooms and women go in women's restrooms and locker rooms. It's, it's unbelievable the culture in which we are living today, ladies and gentlemen. It's unbelievable. It's insane, quite honestly. We have candidates running for... For, for governor, for, for United States senator, for House seats, who have actually promised to abolish HB2, House Bill 2. Uh, so the, in essence, they are promising to put your children, your, your wives, your daughters, your, to put them in danger. Vote for me and I'll put them in danger. I don't know not, not what the slogan will say, but that's actually what's going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. It's insane. And, and somewhere, somebody has to stand up and say, no, this is not right. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to like me. and You, you don't have to, what, but, but this somewhere, this is, this is insane. This is not right. We have to stand against the culture, not because we're any better than anybody else, not because we hate them, but because we love them and because God loves them and because God desires to reach them and impact their lives and change their eternal destinies. And so somebody has to stand.
against the culture. Somebody has to break with the culture and say, yeah, well, it might make me unpopular, or it might, uh, I might get made fun of, or it might cost me what, this or that or, or whatever. Listen, for you, it might be at school, as I said it earlier. For you, it might be in the workplace. For you, it might be in your home. For you, it might be uh, on your team uh, or at your recital. Or, or, but you might be the only one who's decided that I'm, I'm going to stand for God. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with God and break from the culture that is running, rapidly running away from God. You've got to do it. If you, if, you have, if you know Him, if you have this relationship with Him, you and I have to understand there has to come a time when we say, it, it, we're, I'm with God. I'm going with God in my life, in my actions, in my, the way I conduct myself, the way I treat people at school or at work or whatever the case may be. Listen, you feel those moments you feel them, right? You feel alone. I want to, I want to give you this, uh, and this is something that will probably show up throughout this, this series, but I want to just remind you of this, this truth, that, whenever, that you're, what you always have to choose, you have to choose, when you have to choose between feeling and faith, you have to choose faith over feeling. Your feelings will tell you it's not worth it. Your feelings will tell you, well, 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 maybe I'm being unfair. Your feelings will tell you you have to eventually come to the place where you're going to choose faith over feeling. And you're going to say, no, here's what, here's what God says. Here's what his word says. Here's what he wants me to do with my life. I have to choose faith. It may hurt me. It may cost me. It may do whatever. But I have to choose feeling over, I have to choose faith over feeling. And remember this, and here's one little last thing I'm going to give you, then we'll close. If you understand this, I am never alone when I walk with God. You may feel it. You may feel it in your home, in your family. I am I, at school. I'm never alone. Remember, can I, can I get you to say that out loud? I'm never alone when I walk with God. Would you say it one more time? I'm never alone when I walk with God. Amen. Always choose faith over feeling. That's a good word for us to hear today. Circumstances are real. Adversity is real. Feelings are real. But as Pastor Clay explained today, we can choose faith over our feelings. The world in Noah's day had become so corrupt with sin that there was virtually no one willing to stand with God. It broke God's heart to see what His creation had become. But God had a plan. And through one man who was willing to stand alone against the culture, God moved in a mighty way. Our culture today is becoming more and more corrupt, it seems. Standing for God and His righteous standards can be a pretty lonely place. But God promises to walk with us every step of the way and in the end, reward us for being willing to faithfully stand with Him. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. 
and join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of Cross Culture Worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540 Exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. A new church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.